So 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning to read at verse 1. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and are dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and to urge on them. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy and strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good good confession. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in His own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. 
turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and in doing so have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us. Lovely. Well, if you have a Bible, let's turn together to First Timothy chapter 6. It's page 1194 in the Pew Bible. We are, as John said, we're getting near to the end of our little journey through First Timothy. And uh, we're going to spend our last two weeks uh, tonight and next week, all being well, we're going to spend our last two weeks looking at uh, this last chapter. And tonight we are thinking about what Paul is going to teach us here about money. Uh, and let me tell you why that's important to us. It's because how we relate to money is a potential threat to our spiritual lives, and we might not realize it. Uh, we'll, we'll mention where this comes from in a moment, but Jesus pointed out that uh, we should be on our guard against all kinds of greed. Now, the fact that he says that in that way implies that, that greed can take us unawares. He, he doesn't say, for example, be on your guard against all kind of murder, as if you can be halfway through a murder and not quite realize what you're doing. But he does say, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. It can take us unawares. So we can have a problem with greed and might not realize it. We, we, we recognize that we live in an incredibly materialistic society, and yet we tend to think it's not a problem for us. We're okay with that. And yet Jesus says, be on your guard. This could be creeping up on you. You know, I don't really know what the illustration is. Imagine you, you give a, a child a puppy, and that dog grows up with that, that little boy or that little girl, but it turns out that that little boy or girl has a, a particular allergy to that puppy, and if they spend too much time with it, it, it really makes them very, very ill. And, and, and there's that potential for something that we, we don't really know. It, it's, actually doing us, it's actually doing us harm. Or, or sometimes we, we talk about the, the, the idea of, of as a Christian, uh, bringing Jesus into the house whenever uh, we become Christians, and, and, and then we, we realize that, that he wants access to, to every room in the house, our uh, relationships, our ambitions, our, our, our whatever it might be. And, and this uh, room of, of money is, is what we want to, to do tonight, is open the door and say, now, Jesus, come in here and tell us, tell us what we should do about about this. So what money can do is it can take the place of God in your life. Remember Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money. We, we, we all serve something. We serve someone. And Jesus warned us about the possibility of serving money as opposed to serving God, really implying this can be a God for you in your life. Now, before we jump into the passage, let, let me say something that we used to talk about a fair wee bit, and we haven't spoken about it recently, and maybe some of us are, are in Hill Street a little bit more recently, but uh, we want to talk a little bit just about, about idolatry. One of the, the writers who has really helped the church stay, uh, wrestle with the issue of idolatry is Keller, is Tim Keller. One of the, the things that he is 
famous for writing and speaking about is the whole role of idolatry within the Christian life. He's not the only person to do that, but he's the one that has, in a sense, popularized it. And, and particularly this book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, you'll see it in different colored uh, uh, covers and so on, but a particularly helpful book that looks at the issue of idolatry. And, and uh, there's a chapter in here on, on money, and it is super, super helpful. Now, I don't know what you, you think about whenever you think about idolatry, whenever you think about an idol. I think maybe you, you, you might think about a faraway land. Maybe you visited a faraway land, and you walked around a city, and, and you've come to a temple, perhaps, and you see these carved images, and, and there are people bowing down before them and venerating them and, and sacrificing to them and so on. And, and that's what we perhaps tend to think about whenever we think about idols. Now, that is very much one of the pictures that the Bible has whenever it talks about idols. We, we read, for example, that Paul uh, visited Athens. Athens, a magnificent city in the ancient world. And he walked around uh, what, that, uh, what would have been a city that very like on any others that he would have visited, much more grand and so on. And yet the thing that, that struck him was not the majestic buildings or the incredible culture, but that the city was full of idols and it distressed him. And, and that's the sort of thing that he was talking about, you physical idols. But there's another thing in mind whenever the Bible talks about idolatry. It's not a, a carved image, but an orientation of the heart. And that's what we want to think about here. So, for example, a couple of verses, Ephesians 5 and 5 and Colossians 3 and 5, they're on the screen. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Ephesians 5, 5. Colossians 3 and 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So you see there, Paul, in both of those verses, equates greed with idolatry. So not a bowing down to a carved image, but something that has taken the place of God in one's life. That's, that's the, the, the place that God has. Of course, God should be first in a person's life, and anything that becomes a dominant in that place that is not God, that is an idol. So that's one of the, the issues that, that we have as fallen human beings. We tend to, to elevate things that are not worthy of our worship, and we put them in that number one spot. So Romans one twenty five, we read, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is ever to be praised. In other words, we, we take what is not God and not worthy to be God, but we elevate it and put it on the throne that only God belongs on. And we tend to worship that instead. Now, this is a big issue for us in this world. Uh, the atheistic uh, philosopher Nietzsche uh, said that the Western world, um, he believed that as, as uh, uh, belief in God declined, that money would effectively sit in the place of God within Western culture. And I think we can see that, that what he predicted was absolutely right. Now, it is Keller who particularly says that uh, idols can be hard to spot, and especially this idol of money. And it was him who used that illustration of, of uh, Jesus pointing out that we need to be on our guard against it because it can sneak up on us. 
And, and the reason he suggests for that is a very practical one. We, we all become used to living at a certain level. We, we, we get our, our monthly income or whatever, and we tend to, to, to sort of live within that certain standard. And whatever standard we find ourselves living within, we can always find people who are just doing a little bit better than us. They've got a little bit more than us. And so we tend to say to ourselves, well, I don't live as lavishly as they do. And so, so money is not a problem for me. It might be a problem for them, but it's not a problem for me. And yet Jesus said, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. So, so we need to begin, therefore, with the assumption that Jesus knows us and he knows what our particular temptations are, and he knows that, that our hearts being idle factories, as, as Calvin said, that, that our hearts being idle factories will tend to very easily make an idol out of money. And he is doing us a kindness here because he is identifying that thing that is a threat to our spiritual health. He's identifying the non-hypoallergenic dog in our life. I didn't have that illustration written down, and I'm not sure it's a great one, but, but there you are. Uh, that, that, that thing that, that, that we think is, a, is under control, but is actually perhaps making us ill. When Jesus uh, talked in Luke chapter 12 about uh, uh, be on your guard about all kinds of greed, that's where that uh, verse comes from. He has a particular uh, focus there. He is, if you look at the, the chapters around that, he's not just warning about greed or not just warning about those who want more. He's actually warning about those who are worrying excessively about their possessions and about their lives. And so greed can show itself in all sorts of ways. A love of money can show itself both in a, in a desiring for more or in a, an excessive anxiety about what we have or what we haven't. And we know that that is very much the spirit of the age. Keller also says that with idols, we tend to uh, love them and trust them and obey them. That's the mark of an idol. We love it, trust it, obey it. And, and, and that's, of course, what we should do with God. But if it's something else that's functioning there, we will love it and trust it and obey it. And you think of someone who loves money, well, we, we dream about it, perhaps. We dream about ways of, of uh, having more than we have. We... we uh, jealously look at someone who has more than we do. Uh, we, we, we trust it. We, we, we come to value that sense of control that having enough, a little bit of a cushion gives us, and then we serve it. In other words, we will do what we need to do in order to get it. Now, now, whenever we begin to think of idolatry in those sorts of terms, we, we realize, oh, this is a danger for us. Money can function like an idol for us. And it's really helpful just to step back and look at that a little bit uh, through some of the things that, that Keller points out. Now, with that in mind, let's have a look at what Paul says to Timothy about money, because money was a problem in Ephesus. And, of course, the main problem in Ephesus was false teaching, and the, uh, the, the false teaching was there. Contrary to the truth, which tends to provide soundness and health, as we read in these verses, false teaching produces uh, corrosive results in the soul. And the false teachers, it seems, valued money, and Paul was particularly concerned that their attitude to money was going to 
uh, uh, permeate the congregation. These false teachers were greedy. They thought that uh, godliness was, or let's even say a, a church involvement, that godliness was a, was a means to financial gain. They were in it for the money. They weren't interested in God himself, but rather were interested in what they could get by being interested in God. You get that? And, and what you actually use God for is your real God. Some people use God for comfort. Well, then that's your real God. Some people use God for security, that that's your real God. And you see that they were, they were doing what Paul had talked about in Romans. They were, they were worshiping something other than God rather than the Creator. They were imagining that godliness was a, a means to gain. Now, you see, the thing is, godliness, as Paul says here, godliness really is the gain. They, they were using God to get to the real God, which is money, but godliness uh, is the gain. Well, how does Paul address this? Well, he talks about uh, two truths, two truths, first of all. He, he uh, opens the door to that little cupboard under the stairs that's the, the door with my financial affairs written on it, and he sort of shines the light into it and says, well, let's have a look at what's going on in here. And in the light then we start to see things as they really are. And there are two particular truths that he highlights for us here. First of all, money is temporary. Money is temporary. For, look at verse 7, chapter 6, verse 7 of 1 Timothy. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Well, that's a, a fairly obvious statement, isn't it? I sometimes talk to Katrina and say, well, how did things go today in the maternity ward and the delivery suite? And never once has she said, well, I delivered a baby today and it came out with two suitcases and there was full of 10-pound notes. Nobody ever comes into this world with hey, money. And at the end of the life, of course, it's the same. Some people are buried with money, buried with precious possessions but they don't really take them with them, do they? You leave with nothing. You know the name of Rockefeller, a very famous and wealthy American, died in 1937. He founded Standard Oil, one of the first big um, <clears throat> American businesses, and the demand for oil soared through his lifetime, and, and he became incredibly rich. He, at one point, controlled 90% of the oil in, in America. The richest man in the world. Adjusted for inflation, his personal fortune was uh, valued at about $350 billion. And the story is told that at his funeral, everybody was, was trying to find out what he was worth because it wasn't like today. There wasn't sort of published in the rich lists and all the rest of it. And his personal aid was, was sort of hounded by the press. And they said, well, can you tell us, what did, what did uh, Mr. Rockefeller leave? And his aide was very cute. And he said, oh, he left everything. Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. And, and you see, you depart into eternity. That's the thing. You, you will live forever in heaven, or you will die forever in hell. That's the, 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 the truth. An incredible light to be shone into the cupboard under the stairs. 
And, and so Paul is saying now, if this is the truth, if this is how this looks in the cold light of day, as it were, why do we concentrate so much on what this world has to offer and forget about the next? So long as what we have what we need here, food and clothing, verse 8, surely that will do us. Money, Paul says, is temporary. But he also says that money is tempting. That's the other thing. Money is tempting. Look at verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Well, we, we perhaps hear of the person who has said as they have come through school, my aim is to be a millionaire at 30 and to retire and so on. And they, they say, I, I, I just want to be rich. That's what I want to, to do. I, I remember somebody saying to, them, to me about that. I, I grew up and, and money was always an issue in our house. It never just felt that we had come. And so I determined that I would be not in that position and I would be wealthy. And so maybe at the start, somebody works really, really hard, and then they get an opportunity to make money by cutting corners, and they take it, and maybe the next time it's easier, and they do it again, and now that person is trapped, you see. He doesn't see it, but he is now a servant of his money, and he's locked into a a way of life that is doing him harm. He has set his life on a particular trajectory. He's heading somewhere. He's heading to ruin. Maybe he tells himself that he's above the law, that he needs nothing, that he's not accountable, and his life crumbles, and he ends up perhaps rich but empty. And the danger, you see, is that we sit here and think, oh, yeah, I've read about people like that in the papers. And we think it's a problem for those very rich people. I'm glad that's not relevant to me. But don't you see, it is an issue for those who want to get rich, not just for those who do. And that means that those who who want to be richer than they already are. So it's a danger for all of us. We can be in love with money if we have lots of it, or we can be in love with money if we have very little of it. And that's the problem. It's, it's, it's love. It's, it's not money that's the root of all evil. Sometimes people quote that wrongly. It's the, the love of money. Money in itself is, is, in that sense, is neutral. But the love of it is not neutral. It is the love that should be set on God because that's where all love ought to ultimately go. That first love that first love that should be set on God has been transferred to something that he has made, money. And of course, as such, that produces bad fruit. That misplaced love is a root of all kinds of evil. So money is tempting. And maybe, maybe you say, oh, well, do you know, I, I remember I used to be like that before I was a Christian, but now that I'm a Christian, I'm so glad I've been delivered from all of that. Okay. Well, you see, it is a problem here for Christians, isn't it? Because Paul knows that it can wreck the faith of believers. And actually, already has. Look at verse 10. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So here are some believers who thought they could have it all. 
and they thought they could pursue money along with God. And Jesus says, well, you, you just can't have two bosses. You, you can't have two masters. It's one or the other. There's got to be one person in the driving seat of your life. You know, sometimes uh, you, you, you might have grown up and, and your, your, your dad might have put you on his knee and, 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 and you just steered and he did work the accelerator and the brakes because you couldn't reach those. And we think, well, I'll do that sort of dual driving thing, money and, and, and the Lord. But it doesn't work like that. Jesus predicted what Paul says here as he told the parable of the sower. We were talking about that the other night in, in uh, men's Bible study. Some people start off well, but as he says in Mark chapter 4, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. You see? And you notice here that, that it says that those who have, have uh, set their hearts on money, in verse 10, have pierced themselves with many griefs. What do you think that looks like? Does it mean that constant worry over what you have or what you haven't? Is it maybe the realization of a life that has gone down a path that it shouldn't have gone down, a, a memory of what maybe once was? Whatever it is, it's not good. It doesn't sound like a, a good way to be, does it? Isn't it interesting? The world says you, you need to get money to be content. And Jesus says, it's possible for you to set your heart on money and to pierce yourselves with many griefs. So money is a temptation. Well, what do we do? What, what, not just a problem to, to highlight the problem. How do we deal with it? Well, well, actually, there's lots in here that helps us to deal with it as well. And, and Paul sort of circles back to the problem at the end of the chapter, uh, particularly a, a addressing those who are in the Ephesian church and are better off, verses 17 to, uh, to 19. Uh, and we ought to realize, of course, that uh, compared to many people in this world, we are better off. You, you, you know the old uh, story, you count the taps in your house, and if you've got more than one, you're in the top, whatever it is, uh, seventh of the, the, the world's population. And, and, and he knows that, that, that in order to avoid temptation, they need to do certain things. And he gives them hope. He gives them hope. And, and there are two things that he tells them. So there are two, two uh, truths that he shines into this cupboard under the stairs. And then there are two commands that he gives to them. First of all, he said, you've got to uh, target your hope. You've got to hope in the right things. Clarify your hope. Look at verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So you see how, how he, he, he highlights something here. Wealth can lead us to think that we're better than others, make us arrogant, and it can also lead us to put our hope in it, to have our confidence and our security and our identity in it. And that's a really false foundation because ultimately it is uncertain. 
Rather, he says, of course, our hope is to be placed in God. That, that's where our confidence is to be, our, our identity is to be. So, so Paul is really saying, look, if you have money, and I think if we're speaking to anybody in a, almost in a Western context that this is true for us, if you have money, make sure your life is wrapped up in him rather than in what you have. Now, half of that command is no good. Just saying, be careful about the draw of money is not enough. There's power in that warning, but not enough power. Because we've got hungry hearts that are going to yearn after something. So we've got to stop them yearning after money. And we've got to redirect them to yearn after God. Just thinking about this. Earlier, I grew up, and, and some of the TV, you know, that we had, in one way, was far, far better than the TV now. But, but there were these really bad CGI uh, sort of films of Jason and the Argonauts and Sinbad the Sailor and all these sorts of old Greek myths and so on. And, and uh, some of these stories had, had real sort of uh, heart in them. Some of you might remember those. In the story of the Odyssey, Ulysses is a captain of the ship. And he had to sail past an island where the sirens lived. Not like the fire brigade, but you know, these people that sang these beautiful songs. These, these, they sang these beautiful songs to passing sailors. And the sailors went, oh, that's a lovely song. And, and they, they, they went ashore and then they ate them or something. I'm not sure. And, and, and Ulysses and, and his crew... Uh, stop their ears. They put uh, rags in their ears, but they tie Ulysses to the mast so that he can hear the song. And he says to them, now, whatever you do, don't let me, don't untie me. I want to hear this song, but, but as long as I'm tied up, I can't do anything about it. And, and, and the, the ropes around him saved him from destruction. He wanted to go to the sirens, but he couldn't. And then there's another Greek myth. It's, it's Jason. And Jason and his sailors have to go past this same island. But what Jason did was different. He hired a guy called Orpheus, who was the most skilled musician that he could find. And he got him to sit on the deck of his boat and play this most beautiful music. And the beautiful music drowned out the songs of the sirens, and the ships passed by in safety. Now, do you know what legalism says? Legalism says, tie me to the mast. I want to hear it, but I don't want to go there. Tie me to the mast. Do you know what the gospel says? It says, listen to the music of Jesus. And then the, he will drown out the, the call of the world. Don't just refuse to put your hope in money, but put it in a better place. Allow the sweeter song of the Lord to capture your hearts. See, money will call to you. You've got to use it. Money will call to you. But you make sure that you're, you're really listening to something else. You wrap yourself up in the Lord, and his voice will be sweeter to you, and that will be a safe passage for you. It was the old Scottish preacher, Thomas Helmers, preached a sermon about this, and he talked about the expulsive power of a new affection. Not the catchiest sermon title in the whole world, but, but really descriptive. 
He says, what you really need, we, we've got an affection for sin. And what we really, really need is, is a new affection to come in and expel the old one. An expulsive power of a new affection. Who is that new affection to be for? It's to be for the Lord Jesus. Wrap yourself up in God and his voice will be sweeter to you. And you will have safe passage. And then, you see, you'll be able to see the good things in your life as gifts from him to be enjoyed. You see that here? Gifts from him to be enjoyed. God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, and not as ends in themselves. We really need to hear this about every month or so. Don't we live in this world? Clarify your hope. Where's your hope? The second thing is, just in a word or two, we've got to use our money. I'm going to use our money. Verse 18 and 19. Command them to do good. So here are these people who are better off. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So this verse really, uh, verse 18, repeats the same basic idea three times. Each time, sort of getting a little bit more specific. Command them to do good. Be rich in good deeds. Do you want to know what that means? Be generous and willing to share. Just one of the ways that the Bible pushes the truth into us. And you see, the discipline of giving, and we've said this before, but not for a while, the discipline of giving is one of the things that God gives to us as a gift to stop the world having us. Being generous with what we have is an antidote to the corrosive effects of guilt in our lives, of, of, sorry, of greed in our lives. And sometimes we think about giving and we think of it as a painful duty, but it's not. It's a gift from the Lord. And it's God saying, Here's how, you've got to deal with money, here's how I'm going to keep you safe. You give some of it away, and you be generous. This is going to help you keep from having an idol at the center of your life that will damage you. You know, Hebrews 13, 5, keep your lives free from the love of money. And you say, well, how do we do that? You tend to sort of love what you love, don't you? Well, one of the tools that God gives us is to help us be, is to, to be generous, to give. And, and, and it just indicates that, that God has us, and it's one of the ways that we break the power of money and greed over us. And so Paul loves these people, he loves them dearly. Remember, this was a church that he'd spent a lot of time with. And he says to them, now, look, this is, this is really for your best. He says to those people who have a bit of money, look, God has given you this. Here's, here's how you, you make it work. Here's how you survive as a Christian with this, this tricky thing that is temporary and temp, full of temptation. Here's how you deal with it. You put your hope in the Lord and you are generous with what you've got. 
And you, you can just, just imagine some of them saying, oh, but, but, you know, Paul, uh, look, look around at this world that we're living in. It's just so materialistic. And, 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 and look at how this whole world is, is driven by money. And, and, and Paul says, well, here's the antidote. Here's my gift from, to, to stop you being seduced by this false god. Be, be generous. So here you see is this this safe path through the woods, if you want the, the picture. It's a, vo- a life that, that involves being wrapped up with God, godliness with contempt, contentment, because nothing else will, will bring that sort of contentment, and generosity. And you know, you know, the Lord wanted that so much for us that He gave Paul talks about giving in 2 Corinthians, and he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So if you go home tonight and you turn on some of the Christian TV channels, you might hear some crazy preacher Make sure you haven't hit our YouTube channel. You might hear some crazy preacher saying, God wants you to be rich. And the problem is, like lots of false gospels, it's sort of half right. God does want you to be really rich. But that's not a bank account. That's not a pile of stuff. It is him. It's a life wrapped up in him that sits pretty loosely to this world that we're in. The question is, do you believe him? Christian life is all about faith and repentance. Lord, I believe you. I'm sorry for not believing you. Do we believe him? Do we think he's really out for our best? If God thought that a really blessed life involved money, He'd have sent us an economist, but he sent us a savior who would become poor so that you and me could really live. Well, let's thank him and pray. Let's pray together.